0: This is the Islamic History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 7, powered by islamiclearningmaterials.com. Welcome to the Islamic History Podcast from Islamic Learning Materials. This is where we take the history of Islam, peel back the layers, and add a little bit of spices, and serve it up in tiny little bite-sized pieces. And here's the man who's going to do all the cooking, Mutaki Ismail. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. I am your host Muttaqi Ismail and we are continuing our story of the history of Islam, the first 100 years after the Prophet's death. In this episode, we will cover two famous events that took place during Omar's Caliphate. They are the plague of Emmaus, which killed thousands of people. And we'll also cover the great famine of the Hijaz, known to the Arabs of the time as the Year of Ashes. Inshallah, I hope you will enjoy this episode. Show notes will be available at Islamic learningmaterials.com slash plague, P-L-A-G-U-E. With that, let's go ahead and get into the show. Here we go with the Islamic History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 7. In this episode, we are going to cover two very important events that took place in the Muslim world in the years 639 and 640, of the Common Era. These were the infamous Plague of Amwas as well as the Great Famine of the Hijaz. But let's begin by first trying to understand what is plague and just exactly how it works. Plague is an infectious disease that is caused by a bacteria called Yersinia pestis. This bacteria and the disease it causes is usually spread from rodents to humans. The first recorded instance of a plague outbreak was about 100 years before Prophet Muhammad was born and this recorded instance took place in the city of Constantinople. This is generally how plague is often spread. First, we have human storehouses full of grain, which attract rodents, primarily mice and rats. These rats carry fleas with them, and the fleas are carrying the bacteria Yersinia pestis. The fleas that are carrying the bacteria bite the rats and they transmit the bacteria Yersinia pestis to the rats. The thing is that this bacteria is fatal to both humans and rats. And so eventually the rats will die from the bacteria Yersinia pestis. The rats often die in the vicinity of humans, either in the storehouses where the grain was being kept, or perhaps inside of sewages and dwellings where humans frequent. Either way, once the rats die, the fleas no longer have a host. But when they come in contact with humans, they then jump from the rat to the human. And the fleas carry on the cycle by biting the human and therefore transmitting the bacteria Yersinia pestis from the flea into the human. Now here where that nasty little bacteria really earns its name. It is first of all not dangerous to the flea. So the flea can jump from rat to rat to human to human and on and on and spread the bacteria many times over without incurring any harm on itself. Furthermore, in addition to that, once the bacteria enters the mammal's bloodstream, either the rat or the human, it can be very successful in avoiding and evading the body's natural defenses. One of the primary human defenses is something called a phagocyte, and these are usually produced in human lymph nodes. The human lymph nodes will be killed by the bacteria, but then in trying to protect the body, The lymph nodes will continue to produce phagocytes, which are supposed to protect the body from these bacteria, but the bacteria will instead continue to kill the phagocytes. This causes the human lymph nodes in the armpits and the neck and the groin to overwork and try to produce more and more phagocytes which are being killed by the bacteria and the human lymph nodes therefore become swollen and painful to the touch. These swollen lymph nodes are called buboes. The buboes can get very large and cause blood vessels in the area to rupture. When these blood vessels rupture, they make the skin around them turn to a blackened color. The word bubos has led to the phrase bubonic plague and the blackened skin that is a trademark of the bubonic plague has led to another nickname for the disease that we often call the black death. The most famous incident of the bubonic plague or the Black Death took place in the 14th century in Europe in which over 100 million people were killed. In the year 639 of the Common Era, an outbreak of bubonic plague struck the growing Muslim empire. It started off In the city of Nicopolis, which eventually became known as Emwas, which is in the modern state of Israel, but at that time it was simply known as Syria. And by the way, the city of Emwas no longer exists as it was completely destroyed by the Israeli army during the Six Day War. As far as the plague of Emwas was concerned, It is estimated that around 20,000 people died from the plague and among them were several prominent Sahaba or companions of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. The most well-known of all the victims of this plague was Abu Ubaidah, the famous general that we spoke of a couple of episodes ago, who succeeded Khalid ibn Walid as the general of the Muslim armies in Syria. After the death of Abu al Omar Umar ibn al-Khattab, the Khalifa of the Muslim world, made Mu'adh ibn Jabal another close companion of Prophet Muhammad as the governor of Syria. However, a few months later, Mu'adh ibn Jabal was also killed by the plague. We haven't mentioned much about Mu'ad ibn Jabal during this podcast season, but he is one of the more famous and prominent Sahabas. Just a little recap about him. Mu'ad was one of the first members of the Ansars to accept Islam. He accepted Islam from Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam while the Prophet was still in Mecca Mu'adh was one of those early companions from Medina who went to make Hajj met with Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam liked what he heard about Islam and accepted Islam then Mu'adh went back to Medina and began to spread Islam amongst his family members and neighbors and friends, and he returned in the next year's hajj with an even bigger group of people who wanted to accept Islam. This hadith can be found in Sunan Ibn Majah, and links will be available in the show notes, but I will read the English for you now. Ibn Abbas, radiallahu anhu, narrated that, The Prophet sent Mu'adh to Yemen and said, You are going to meet some people from among the people of the book, that is the Christians and the Jews. Call them to bear witness that none has the right to be worshipped but Allah, and that I am the messenger of Allah. If they obey that, then tell them that Allah has enjoined upon them five prayers every day and night. And if they obey that then tell them that Allah has enjoined upon them charity, that is, zakat from their wealth, to be taken from the rich and given to their poor. If they obey that, then beware of taking the best of their wealth, and beware of the supplication of the oppressed, for there is no barrier between it and Allah. There are several versions of this hadith, but this is just one of them. But the point is, it is that last line, the supplication of the oppressed, that is very famous with many Muslims. And it was essentially a warning and an advice to Mu'adh ibn Jabal, who was due to become the governor of Yemen under the leadership of Prophet Muhammad Sallam, not to oppress the people and not to make them resent the Muslims who are ruling them because Allah will answer the dua of the oppressed regardless of the faith of the oppressed or the faith of the oppressor. It is a warning to all. But as we mentioned, Mu'adh ibn Jabal was only 33 years old when he died from the plague. Another important victim was Yazid ibn Abi Sufyan. Yazid was one of the first commanders that Abu Bakr sent into Syria while Khalid ibn Walid was still conquering cities and villages and fortresses over in Persia. After Khalid ibn Walid had conquered Damascus, he made Yazid the governor of Damascus. When Muad died, Omar made Yazid the governor of all of Syria. So as you can see, first it was Abu Abaydah who was the governor of Syria and the plague killed him. Then Omar made Muad ibn Jabal the governor of Syria and the plague killed him as well. And now Omar made Yazid ibn Abi Sufyan the governor of Syria and then the plague killed him also. And so you have, in just the space of a few months, three of the most prominent Muslim leaders of the time, as well as three prominent companions of Prophet Muhammad, all dying because of this plague. Before Yazid died, he named his younger brother, Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan, to be the governor of Syria after his death. And this is where things start coming together for us from a historical perspective. Muawiyah would go on to play a very important role in Islamic history. He would, many years later, become the fifth caliph of Islam, and he would also have a reign that would last almost as long as the combined reigns of the four righteous caliphs. Muawiyah would reign as caliph of the entire Muslim world for almost 20 years. Muawiyah would also be involved in several battles with Ali ibn Abi Talib, and Muawiyah would also be the beginner of the Umayyad dynasty. But we are still several episodes from that. Okay, now let's switch gears a little bit and discuss the concept of jizya. We have mentioned it in previous episodes of the Islamic History Podcast, but I would like to go into it a little bit further as it does relate a little bit to the upcoming topic that we're going to discuss next. First of all, there are a few common misconceptions about jizya. Many people think that jizya is only for Jews and Christians and that any conquered people who do not fit into those molds must either be evicted from the land or they must convert to Islam. That is not true. I've heard that from many Muslims, unfortunately, who believe that jizya is only meant for the people of the book. But the fact is that All of the non-Muslims who were conquered during this period of time under the caliphates of Abu Bakr and Omar, they all had to pay jizya. No one was evicted because they were not part of the people of the book. It was not just Jews and Christians, but also pagans as well as Zoroastrians, which was the primary religion in Persia. They all had to pay jizya. Another thing is that people sometimes make it seem as if jizya is something to make non-Muslims feel humiliated under the power of Muslims. That is not necessarily true. It is a tax. It is simply that, a tax. Just like zakat is really a tax, but it is a spiritual tax that is meant for Muslims. The non-Muslims do not have to pay zakat because it is wrong for us to force anyone to obey Islamic law if they are not Muslim. And it is wrong to enforce Islamic law on non-Muslims. Therefore, since the non-Muslims under the caliphates Abu Bakr and Omar could not force them to pay zakat, they had to exact instead jizya, which was a tax tax. We all pay taxes in pretty much every state throughout pretty much all times of human history. But keep in mind that not all non-Muslims had to even pay jizya. The elderly, the priests of all faiths, not just Jews and Christians, but also Zoroastrians and others, they were exempt from paying the jizya. Also, any non-Muslims who served in the military, they were also exempt from paying jizya. You might be surprised to know, but yes, there were several non-Muslims, Christians and Jews and others, who participated in the fighting on the side of the Muslims. As fighting soldiers, they were exempt from paying the jizya. Also, anybody who just happened to be too poor to pay the jizya, They were also exempt from paying it. So it is not a blanket tax laid upon everybody who doesn't say la ilaha illallah in an attempt to make them feel as if they were second class citizens. Now, despite all of these exemptions, the Muslims were still just conquering Hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of square miles of territory in their population was beginning to include hundreds of thousands of non-Muslim citizens. And with that, the wealth just flowed into Medina. Wealth was coming in from the three primary sources, which we've spoken about in previous episodes. The jizya, of course, as well as conquered and captured property. And finally, taxes and zakat from the muslims themselves omar was receiving so much money especially from the conquest of iraq that he didn't even know how to handle it all at first there was just so much money coming into medina and so Omar began to hold counsels with some of his closest advisors and his companions, as well as the companions of the Prophet Muhammad, to try to come up with some method, some policy regarding all of this wealth that was flowing into Medina. Now, some companions suggested that Omar should save this money as like a treasury, like a rainy day fund in the treasury in case of emergency. But Omar was absolutely against this. He felt that this would take away Allah's blessings. And so instead, he insisted that all of the money that came in, it had to be given away by the end of the year. And this leads us to another historical crossroads because in order to properly calculate when the year ended, the Muslims had to develop a calendar because the old system of calling a year by specific events just wasn't working. And so the need for management of the wealth coming into Medina highlighted to the Muslims the need for an accurate calendar. And that is how we got the Hijri calendar that we have today. Now, after giving away as much money as possibly be given away to the poor, there was still loads of money left in Medina with all of this wealth coming in. And so Omar decided to begin giving stipends away to the citizens and the residents of the Muslim empire. Once again, he was adamant that the money be given away Every single year. First in priority as far as who would receive the most money and who would receive money first were those participants in the Battle of Badras. This was the first true battle of Islam, and this was of course the most important meeting between the Muslims during the time of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam versus the pagan Quraysh. And there were only roughly 300 Muslims who took part in that battle. Next in priority, after the members of the Battle of Badr, were those who were present during the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. This was a very important part of Islamic history as well, as this sort of set the tone for the small state of Medina actually being a power in Arabia. And it also gave time for Prophet Muhammad wasallam to begin to spread the message of Islam abroad beyond the borders of the Arabian Peninsula in a peaceful, invitational way. And once again, we spoke about all this in earlier episodes. After the people who were present during the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, which was about 1,400 companions, the next in line were those who became Muslim once Mecca was conquered. So this would include people who most likely were against the Muslims in the beginning. But once the Prophet Muhammad invaded Mecca and captured it, these people all accepted Islam. They were next in line as some of the earliest Muslims. After that, next in priority were the veterans of the Ridda Wars, the Wars of Apostasy. And then from there... The next priority were the participants in the battles of Syria and Persia, up to and including the battles of Yarmouk and Cordesia, which we spoke about two episodes ago. Now, after that, all of the Muslims living within the Islamic Empire received some form of allowance for those who were part of these categories that I just mentioned, they received the highest amounts, and they also received their portions first. Umar also distributed extra allowance for the wives and the family members of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, as well as those companions who were poor. Furthermore. The family members of companions who died before all of this wealth started flowing into Medina, they also received a stipend. In addition to these basic stipends that everyone received, Omar also distributed an extra allowance to certain members of the military, particularly the officers in the military. But the current soldiers, who may not have been actual officers or people of rank, they also received a stipend. And this is what turned the Muslim army from just that ragtag mob that I had mentioned a few episodes ago into a well paid professional army. But in addition to Muslims receiving a stipend, Omar also gave money away to non-muslims some of those persian nobles who had lost much of their wealth and property and status when their lands were conquered by the muslims omar trying to ease the transition for them by supplying them with a yearly stipend as well and so with this policy of constantly giving money away to as many people as possible omar was able to empty out the treasury On a yearly basis, however, despite how altruistic this policy may seem to us, in reality, there were some drawbacks to it. Now, only Allah knows the spiritual rewards that Omar will receive. In practical terms, Omar was caught off guard when a severe drought and famine struck the Arabian Peninsula. This took place in the year 640 of the Common Era and Arabia, as you are perhaps very well aware of, is already a dry place. And so when the little bit of rain that does come through did not come through, the drought struck the people there who depended on that little bit of rain with extreme severity and that severe drought led to a severe famine. And so with no food and no crops and animals dying left to right, the people of the Arabian Peninsula began making their way to Medina looking for help. Omar was not quite ready for this. And because he had this policy of giving everything away, when they did come, he didn't have the money and the wealth and the provisions available right there in Medina to provide for them, that quote-unquote rainy day fund that we had mentioned earlier. However, despite this little mistake by Omar, things were relatively okay because... When these people began to filter into Medina, Omar sent word out to the other parts of the Muslim world that did have provisions. He sent word out for them to send provisions down to Medina to take care of the victims of the famine. And it took a while for the word to reach the different governors in the different parts of the Islamic empire. And then it took a while for those governors to prepare the food packages. And then it took a while for those packages to make their way back to Medina. But ultimately it did happen and the food and the provisions did arrive in Medina and Omar and his administration were able to feed over 40,000 refugees in Medina. And once the word was put out, the food began to pour into Medina. We mentioned how all that wealth was just coming in. Well, now the food was coming into Medina from all parts of the Muslim world. And Omar and his administration were able to feed all 40,000 of these refugees every day for several months until the famine finally ended. alhamdulillah i hope that you enjoyed this episode and inshallah there will be another one waiting for you next week as well for now however i want to have a brief discussion with you i would like to discuss the purpose of this show i want you to understand why i do this show and to know that while i do take it as a hobby it is more than just a hobby to me as you are perhaps very much aware of, Islam has a fairly bad reputation in much of the Western world. And many Muslims who live in this area, in the Western world, many of us, we have somehow or another, whether we like to admit it or not, we have generated many negative thoughts about Islam and about Muslims and about our past. Some of the propaganda that has been unleashed by certain non-Muslims who dislike Islam, some of that has managed to have an impact on Western Muslims. And so many Muslims believe that the old idea of Islam being spread by the sword and about people being forced to convert and about it being a violent religion, people sometimes often believe that is true. There has been a lot of propaganda from many people who just hate Islam. I'm not going to say they're afraid of it. I'm not going to say they don't understand it. They simply hate Islam. And they have spread a lot of propaganda. And unfortunately, many Western Muslims who have not traveled much overseas, who have not done much studying of Islam, they have bought into this propaganda. And it's not their fault. The propaganda is meant to be believed. It is made by professional marketers and professional entertainers who know what they're doing. These entertainers and marketers may masquerade as authors or journalists or philosophers, but ultimately their main goal is to make money by demonizing and hurting Islam as much as possible. This simple effort of trying to teach Islamic history is to hopefully counter this negative propaganda. But another extreme that many Muslims happen to get into is that we sometimes over-glorify this period. We create this unrealistic image of Islam and Muslims of this period that is really not sustainable. We make it seem as if some of these companions were practically prophets themselves. And I certainly understand our love and admiration for these great men and women who lived during this time and for the amazing things that they accomplished against really big odds but at the same time i wonder if there aren't some negative aspects of this overglorification of men and women who were just human they were not prophets they were not angels they were just human beings who lived great lives and did great things, but they also made mistakes. They were not perfect. I hope that Muslims who hear this understand that they were great men and women. Abu Bakr, Omar, Khalid ibn Walid, they were good men and also women, Aisha and Fatima and other women who we haven't mentioned, it, mentioned yet, but we will get into, they were great women. They were good people. They were good Muslims, but they made mistakes. And we are getting closer and closer to that point where you will see some of their mistakes and what those mistakes led to. We already saw one of the mistakes with Omar, and this may be my personal opinion, but I believe Omar was a little mistaken in not saving money for an emergency. I understand his reasoning behind it, but I think it would have been better for him to save some food and some money within Medina when the famine struck. But that's really. Neither here nor there. I don't want to criticize or critique every single action that Omar made. I was not around at that time. And I do not deal with the same things that he had to deal with. And so, like anyone else, he did the best he could with the resources and the information that he had available. But the point is for you, listener, to understand that he was not perfect. None of us are. Another reason for me wanting to do this podcast on a regular basis is so that all of us can understand how true war was waged during this period of time. You've heard very little instances of civilians being killed randomly in these wars. Now, certainly in any war, civilians are harmed and killed. So I'm not going to give you the false idea that no Muslim soldier during this period ever killed any innocent civilian. Definitely, civilians were killed. However, it is very rare, and I have found very few instances where the Muslim armies deliberately targeted civilians. Very, very rare. Most of the cases of deaths happened during raids for food and also during night attacks where people were accidentally killed. But for the most part, These Muslim armies, they declared war openly. They fought against well-armed, well-trained enemy soldiers in the open. When the time came, they had negotiations. They made prisoner swaps. They did the best they could with what they had, but this was not just reckless, raging, rampaging Arab soldiers just wanting to kill and destroy everything in their path. That was nothing like the Muslim army, that couldn't be further from the truth. Furthermore, I want you to understand that Islam was not spread by the sword. That is a falsehood that continues to be perpetuated to this day. In all of the land and the areas that the Muslims have conquered thus far, you have not heard of anyone being forced to accept Islam. The people who were conquered, they had to pay jizya. They had to pay the tax, but they were never forced to convert to Islam now another thing I want to discuss before we wrap this up is that even though the Muslim soldiers were willing to die for their cause they were willing to die for Islam they still wanted to live they weren't suicidal so this idea of Muslim soldiers being suicidal and just marching bravely into death is a little bit off People generally don't like to die. Now, of course, they had the hopes for the reward of the hereafter. I don't want to take that away from those who did risk their lives. But there was no suicide at this time. People fought and if they were killed in battle, they were happy for that and they accepted it. But ultimately, suicide was not part of the battle plan. So with that, I just wanted to hopefully help you understand why I do this show and why it means so much to me and why I consistently try to make this as enjoyable to you and as useful to you as well. Inshallah, I hope I have reached that point and may Allah accept this service and may Allah forgive me for any mistakes that I have almost certainly made. Okay, now with that, we are going to wrap things up. Just want to remind you that this month's bonus episode is The Slander of Imam Bukhari, and it is available on the Elm Club. If you don't want to join the Elm Club, if you are not already a member of it, you can pay a small fee, very small fee, to download that episode individually. All proceeds, whether it's through the Elm Club or just through downloads, all proceeds from these episodes go back into keeping the podcast going and making things better for you inshallah that is if you enjoy listening to the show if you did enjoy the show please subscribe to Islamic History Podcast in iTunes. Everyone who subscribes helps to make the show just a little bit more visible to others who may not be aware of it. And Alhamdulillah, I thank you and ask that Allah reward you for taking that little bit of effort. All links available to everything mentioned in this episode will be available at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash plague. P-L-A-G-U-E. That is islamiclearningmaterials.com slash plague. And so with that, let's bounce on out of here to the song Colors of Islam by Dawood Warnsby Ali. Until next time, assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa
1: Ya ayo a nassu in a kana kum in the canoe maunta. Waja alna li ta'afu in a kramakum and a takakum in a laha khabir. In the name of Allah, the Most Gracious, Most Merciful. O mankind. We created you from a male and a female and made you into nations and tribes so that you may know one another. Verily, the most honored among you in the sight of Allah is the one who is the most righteous. Indeed, Allah is all-knowing, all-aware. Allah made us all a different shade and color Nations and tribes recognize one another Cause every single Muslim is your sister and brother So many different colors of Islam Fill the world with color, paint it everywhere you go Paint everything you see and tell everyone you know Quran will be your paint and your brush will be Iman So fill the world with color, every color of Islam Truth is clear and blue as the sky we walk under Love is bright and loud as the lightning and thunder Peace is pure and white as the moon so full of wonder So many different colors of Islam Fill the world with color, paint it everywhere you go. Paint everything you see and tell everyone you know. Qur'an will be your paints and your brush will be Iman. So fill the world with color, every color of Islam. Smiles warm and shining like the sun upon our faces. Hope is rich and green as the trees of an oasis. The colors of Islam bloom in so many places. So many different colors of Islam. Fill the world with color, painted everywhere you go. Paint everything you see and tell everyone you know. Quran will be your paint and your brush will be Iman. So fill the world with color, every color of Islam. Fill the world with color, painted everywhere you go. Paint everything you see and tell everyone you know. Quran will be your paint and your brush will be Iman. So fill the world with color, every color of Islam. Fill the world with color, painted everywhere you go. Paint everything you see and tell everyone you know I will be your paint and your brush will be Amen. So fill the world with colour, every colour of Islam Fill the world with
0: colour Every colour of Islam